are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 50 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I have an interview with Asma, whose daughter Sudja was stillborn in 2018. Later that same year, Asma was on a visit to Pakistan when she developed a rare allergic reaction to medication. She returned to the UK and was diagnosed with toxic epidermal necrolysis, which I have to say is one of the most horrendous sounding medical conditions I have ever come across. Um, And I suggest you, I mean, she says you can Google it. I suggest you Google it only if you've got a strong stomach and you don't mind some rather unpleasant photographs popping up. Um, But literally, uh, you know, her skin was was burning. She was placed in an an induced coma. Um, But fortunately, she survived. She's been recovering And she's written a book both about her experiences of losing her daughter and what her brush with death taught her. So during the interview, we talk about her pregnancy, about meeting Sudja after she was born, um, and about how her Islamic faith um, supported her and helped her through her grief. We then go on to talk a bit about her health condition and her allergic reaction and how that impacted her grief and helped her to move on with Sudja and, as she put it, to learn to embrace her in different ways. Um, It's a really great interview and I hope you enjoy it. It's um, the end of January, the last week of January, and here in the UK, it's, I think, our fourth week of lockdown, full lockdown. I mean, obviously, it feels pretty much never ending by now. But I think for me, in the last week or so, it's kind of really started getting to me. I've been reflecting a lot over the last week on the words of Amanda Gorman, who spoke at President Biden's inauguration. And I'm sure you've seen the video of her poem. And if you haven't, I really recommend it. Um, She is inspirational and amazing and has amazing things to say. Um, And certainly I had a tear in my eye by the end of it. But it did make me think about how we get through these long January days and how, for me, I feel like I've had a lot of little emotions and little things that have just been niggling away at me, perhaps chipping away at that positivity and new year resolve, which I maybe had a few weeks ago. And all those little things chip away and they kind of build up and build up. And because I've been busy and sort of pushing them down and not dealing with them, my emotional well then gets full. And when it gets full, inevitably, like any well, it overspills. And yeah, I've been feeling a little bit rough over the last week. So nothing serious at all. I guess, you know, a bit of January blues, lockdown blues, um, a bit of grief and, you know, a few other things just going into the mix there. But um, I just wanted to share that because I'm sure I'm not the only one who's um, feeling a bit like that now. And I think what I what I thought about when I was listening to her words 
was that it's really easy to just kind of keep your head down in the daily grind and forget to look up, forget to look for the light that is there, whether that's the sun above you or looking in terms of what you do have in your life rather than what you don't have in your life. And I'm as guilty of this as the next person, possibly even more so because I can be quite a glass half empty person on occasion. And I often have to remind myself to look up, to look beyond the next day, the next week, month, year to what's hopefully going to be a brighter future at the end of this pandemic and lockdown, one in which there are hugs and exploration and travelling and light. And and I hope for those of you who are on your journeys, you can also perhaps look to whatever that light is for you, whether that's having your baby in your arms, having a you know, having successful fertility treatment, perhaps adopting a child or going down an alternative route to parenthood, or perhaps deciding that, um, you know, deciding that you're done, that you're going to find a different way of creating your rainbow in your life. Um, And, you know, grief hits us every day, doesn't it? Whether, Whether our loss was recent or years and years ago. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling now and get on, let you get on with the interview because that's really why you're listening. You're not listening for my introduction. <laughs> but I wanted to share that just in case it resonated with anyone. So I hope you enjoy this interview and I'll be back again in a fortnight with the next episode. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Asma, whose daughter, Suja, was stillborn in 2018. Later in the same year, Asma suffered a rare allergic reaction that left her staring death in the face. And she is recovering or has recovered and has written a book about her experience. So welcome to the podcast, Asma, and thank you so much for joining me today. Um, So I think I'm right in thinking that Suja was your first child. How was your journey to getting pregnant with her and how did your pregnancy go? Yeah, she um, is my first child. Um, to be honest, I didn't like, you know, have some people try to have like to like consciously make a decision that they want to try to have a baby. That wasn't the case for me. She was like a nice surprise that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was a lovely surprise. In terms of the pregnancy, the pregnancy was really rough because I just kept on being sick all the time throughout the day, night, and I was studying at the same time. So I was at university. So I had to go to lectures, I had to go to placement. And then I was being sick in the car. And then I was like being sick in the toilets. And it was really bad. But at the same time, I, I just felt content. So even though like physically I was drained and tired there was this level of contentment that I can't even put into words knowing that in some ways I just felt really whole I can't explain it it was like it wasn't it sounded it was bad for when I was like being sick but the rest of the time it was really nice Mm. and did everything go okay with the baby and you had I guess you had the routine scans and were you a sort of low-risk pregnancy yeah um because she was my first baby and I think I was 23 at the time so I wasn't considered like to have any underlying health issues or concerns so everything was like going smoothly there was no issues Uh, ultrasound everything was going fine blood results were fine so when she did pass away it was a real shock for me because 
I remember the my uh, community with midwife would always say to me at every appointment that if you feel like she's moving less, then you should get it checked out. And it wasn't the case for me. She was moving more. She was moving a lot. And I used to find it really difficult to go to sleep. If I turn one way, she wiggle that way. If I turn the other way, she wiggle that way. And um, so it wasn't an issue for me. So I didn't have any concerns. I didn't have any bleeding. Um, I uh, all of my blood results were fine when they were measuring my um the midwife was measuring my tummy and then plotting the results. Nothing came up as a concern, but and uh, it was a real shock because I had my um I think it was thirty six week um appointment with the midwife, and the following week um I had I think the appointment was up, was on a Thursday, and the following Saturday she passed away so it was like hang on a minute I just got um you know when they checked the heart and the heartbeat and we were going mm-hmm. I was going through with the midwife in terms of okay we were like thinking about the delivery and like what things I would want and um we were right she was writing all of it down and and I was really excited because I've been I was being sick throughout and the only thing that was keeping me going, I was like, we're nearly there now, we're nearly there. And then I could, like, because I felt like I wasn't giving her enough because I was running around Mm -hmm. all day, university and then placement and then all of the appointments. And then after being sick, I just end up going to sleep for a while and just passing out just from like Mm -hmm. feeling so tired. And this was our chance to kind of like finally uh, meet each other and like just have the rest of our lives to be together really. And I was like telling her, don't worry, we'll we'll have our time together. And uh, that, that bubble truly burst. And I found it really difficult because I couldn't understand how about a week or under a week everything was fine and suddenly everything had changed and it was like someone had I don't know I felt like you know I felt so many things and one of the main things I felt was like the constant confusion between the before and the after what was before what is now and just the feelings of not knowing how to really feel about it. This was meant to be the best day. It was the day I had thought about all the time. And now it was nothing compared to what I wanted. And it was really hard. And it still is hard now. But I think that I've learned to embrace her in different ways other than the physical I I see her in a different way. So it's like I'm always talking to her and I'm always telling her that I love her. So I feel as though in, she's always with me. And I, it took me a while to grasp that and to embrace her in other ways than the physical and not focus too much on the physical. Mm-hmm. And that's really helped me through very difficult times. Mm. And so when what when did you find out that she'd passed away? Did you go into labor or did you go into hospital for oh, another reason for a oh, check? Oh, what happened was that uh, it was the night before on a Saturday and um, my sister made us some really nice chicken pasta and I just was eating it because for once I didn't feel sick and I could finally eat a meal and I was really happy and I was joking. I was saying, are oh, you really like, the baby must really love pasta because like I haven't been sick 
So it was like the middle of the night and like you constantly need to go to the toilet. So I had to go downstairs, went to the toilet, went back upstairs. When I got into bed, I was fine. I remember checking through my phone. It was around 4.30 a.m. And I think like I was looking through my phone and it was that exactly around 4.35. And suddenly I started to get these really bad cramps and they were they were strong but they weren't excruciating and I because my first baby I didn't really know so I just assumed okay I'm going into labor um at that moment in time I didn't I, I wanted to wait until I was able for them to pass or calm down for me to let everyone else know look this is what's going on and when I when I went downstairs and when I told a family member, I was like, you know, I think I'm going into labor. At that when I said that those words, suddenly I felt this liquid come out. And then when I went to the toilet and checked, it was like brown. It wasn't much, but there was brown discharge. And mm-hmm. I straight away um, knew something may not be right because I remember looking up that like if there's that type of discharge. It could be some type of distress. So I phoned up the um, uh, hospital and they said, come in, we'll get you checked out. So then when I went to the hospital, I was worried. But at the same time, I didn't have no reason beforehand to think the worst. So I was like, okay, we're going to hospital, we'll be fine. So I went to the hospital and they took my details, which kind of dragged on a bit. Then I finally got seen by one of the uh, midwives, um, and she tried to find baby's heartbeat and they couldn't. And she probably knew at that time that was like serious, but she never gave me the impression there was something to worry about. She just said, oh, but I can't, I can't tell where baby's heartbeat is at the moment. She's probably in an awkward position. I'm going to get another senior doctor to come and check. So in my head, I was like, okay, I didn't. I didn't think anything was really wrong. So then when they came, they um, took me to a room and then they did the ultrasound. And then within like a few minutes of him trying to find a heartbeat, he said that um, she, there was no, um, he said, there's no fetal heartbeat. And then everything, all of just like just crying. And I was like hysterical. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around everything that I have built up in my head so close like like so close to having her with me and being the mom I always wanted to be and like how could this happen and that's what happened at that moment so mm. and you were just over 37 weeks at that point yeah, so you, yeah. you were effectively full weeks and two days and did you realize what was going to happen afterwards that you would then sort of have to give birth to her and, and go through those those normal things because obviously you're completely in shock at this yeah, point yeah, yeah. Having, they said that I was that already means. dilated now I can't remember how much but I was all like my body was already got beginning labor so um I didn't really have a chance to process anything they were like she's passed away and suddenly I have to give birth I literally have no time to even like properly cry because I'm getting all of these contractions and then mm-hmm. I was throwing up as well so even in the labor I was being sick and I just felt oh. I just felt like so drained from the whole experience and I still had to carry on with it because my body was doing this and it was really hard because uh, I had my mom with me and she was like trying to be really supportive and stuff but it was it was hard because I was on 
um, the ward with all of the other mothers. And I, I remember um, needing to go to the toilet and walking down the corridor, my mom coming with me. And then I could just hear them crying, the babies crying, and knowing that my baby that I'm going to give birth to will never cry. And I just felt like it was... It was so horrendous, the whole experience, that I can't put it into words to to explain how, like, soul-destroying it felt at that time. I think the, the part that was a bit easier was when they moved me and we had, uh, we were in a separate um, ward and I just felt like I had a bit of time to take it in, but still it was a shock. Yeah, and I think... You know, I think there are people listening to this who can relate to what you've just said. And I I can as well, because I was on sort of the main labor ward when I gave birth to my daughter. Um, and yeah, there's there's nothing like hearing those newborn cries while knowing that your baby is is never going to cry and you're not going to hear that. But you still have to go through the same thing that all those other women mm-hmm. are going through. And how how did did you did you decide to meet her after she was born? And how did you feel um, when you saw um, her? I remember that um, they asked me, do you want us to like clean her up a bit and stuff? And I was like, yeah. And they wrapped her up and gave it to me. And the first thing, the first thing my, I saw was like her forehead a hair and I was like whoa she's got lots of hair <laughs> she takes after her dad and I was like whoa and then I saw her head and I saw um, these creases I think there was like four creases and I was like whoa she looks like a dad I saw her face she looks like a dad she was like a spitting image of him like a little <laughs> mini me and I was like oh my god because I just had this impression that uh, because she was a girl she's gonna look like me but no she was exactly like her dad and she was just so beautiful and so perfect. I I couldn't believe in that moment of holding her, I, like everything else just kind of disappeared. The sadness where I was, it was just me and her in that in that moment. And I just felt so much love and I just couldn't believe that my body was able to create such a beautiful baby and did your husband get to meet her he never her as got well? to meet her because um he was well he's abroad at the moment he has he's not able to come over here at the moment so he wasn't able to meet her which was hard as well because i was mm-hmm. with my mom and my family but he wasn't able to be there with me that must have been really hard for both him and you um him having to sort of find out that news from yeah. being so far away and were were you able to find out why why she died yeah, did you get I given a reason yeah i think it was 12 weeks after her being born um they asked me if um prior to that they they asked me like would you want an autopsy what do you want done and uh, do you want the um the placenta check done I said that I wanted my placenta to be examined. So 12 weeks after, I had an appointment with the consultant and the consultant said that my placenta was heavily bloodstained. And from what they could gather that um, I had like an insufficient working placenta. So my uh, daughter wasn't getting enough nutrients from, from my placenta to go and develop. Um, hence why she was only four pound and seven ounces when she was born and they said that because of the I had a placenta abruption as well and there's they said that the placenta abruption 
was small it was minor and if she had been stronger there might have been more time for me to get to the hospital and for something to be done mm-hmm. but because she was so weak when the placenta abruption happened she wasn't able to survive it but the underlying cause was the actual insufficient placenta yeah and it's so it's so awful because like once i because i had a you know i had a similar thing and if you go on to have another pregnancy then they offer you all these growth scans yeah, to yeah. pick up on these issues yeah. but they don't do that yeah. on the one that matters which is you know that first one so were you able to spend a bit of time with her in the hospital and and do a bit of, yeah. sort of making memories and spending um, time with so her she was born at 12 I spent the following day with her until 4 p.m. because in Islam, we um, uh, when someone dies, it's important that we bury them as soon as we possibly can. And I wanted to still be able to spend time with her as well. So I spent the following day and then evening time I went home and she was uh, taken to the, um, her body was taken to the mosque and then... After that, I think the day after, um, it was her funeral. Mm-hmm. And given that she was she was obviously born at full term, and you obviously had a very you were obviously very pregnant at that point, and it must have been hard both to have her funeral. I mean, you must have yeah, still yeah. been so much in shock and still recovering yeah. from the birth when you had her funeral. And then to have to go out without either a bump or a baby in your arms. What what was the reaction of your family and your wider community to your stillbirth? Um, my family were very supportive. They always made me feel and reminded me that it wasn't my fault. Sometimes I would think to myself, like, mm-hmm. I still do now. Like, you just feel like you want to protect your child. And they they always they always were there to say, you know what? It's not your fault, which was comforting. And also in Islam, like our core belief is that in this life, it's it's designed, this world, it's designed to kind of to test us and to see what our response will be to certain situations. And this was what a test from God to see how I would respond. My parents always told me and the people around me told me that you know, she was she was only meant to be here for that amount of time. It was her destiny for her to be here for that amount of time. And that she she truly belongs to God. She was just given to me for that amount of time and she's returned to God. And we as Muslims, regardless of whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, we we believe that ultimately it's God, it's God who we return to, and we usually like in times of um, sadness, kind of help each other by reminding each other that you know everything in this world is temporary, and our final place is with God. Mm. That sounds like it must have been incredibly comforting for you, perhaps to have to have that that knowledge. Um, sort of in those weeks and days and, and following her death. Could you talk a bit how about how your experience of grief, particularly in those kind of early weeks and, you know, whether and how your religion helped the you through that? The first couple of weeks, I think I was just so sad and so confused that, and so I was like withdrawn from everything that I didn't really want to listen. And 
I was I didn't really want to know what was going on. I didn't want to know what was going on outside. I didn't know what want to know what was on TV. I didn't want to even look at the TV screen. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be on my own. And it was my parents and everyone else that said that look, you shouldn't be on your own, even if you don't want to talk, but just don't be on your own. And to be honest, when I think about that time, it's like it's now I remember some of it and some of it I don't and I think that's a subconscious thing to kind of block out trauma and I remember some bits of it but a lot of it I don't remember exactly which is I think my just brain's way of trying to protect myself but one thing I do remember the most and that stands out is that I remember not being able to sleep at night and tossing and turning and just not feeling at peace and then at some point my body would just feel so tired and would just switch off so I would go to sleep at some point and I would wake up and that moment of being asleep and just about waking up I would subconsciously or consciously I would forget I forget and then as soon as my eyes open and I look around and it hits me it hits me harder than it did before I went to sleep that smack in the face that you remember that your whole world has changed and I kind of didn't want to go to sleep because I didn't want that moment to occur that moment of you know like you're just about to wake up you've been so tired you've been tossing and turning you've been crying you know that 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 feeling of kind of like waking up and you feel that sense of relief and then you remember and then you feel like you're drowning you feel I can't explain it it's it's like it's the worst feeling it's like it's happened again you go back to the beginning yeah it's like you're going through that whole shock and uh, everything again yeah and so Sajda died in the February, I think, in 2018. But then you had another yeah. incredibly traumatic yeah, yeah. event later that year. Could you tell us a bit about the lead up to your allergic reaction and um, and everything that happened later After that year? After she died, um, I had a bit of time off from university. Um, I deferred uh, because I when she she died in February, so we were just about to start the um, the next semester, the second semester, and I deferred it to have time off. So at home, I was really struggling on my own. I I wanted to be with my husband. I did have some good days, but deep down, I just didn't feel right. I I wanted to get away for a while, like maybe a change of scenery mm-hmm. uh, would help me. So I went with my dad um, to Pakistan for for a while. The plan was, the original plan was that I was going to go, but I would be back before the next semester that I should return back to the following February. Um, I'll be uh, ready for that. And in the meantime, I was working on things that I had started, like assignments and stuff that I already had attended classes for and just finishing those things off. That was the original plan. And um, so far, the first month abroad was perfectly fine. Yes, it was hard, but I just felt like when I was on the road and my husband's driving and we were just like looking at all of this greenery and stuff, it just made everything go away for a while. And I just felt like I didn't want to leave. I just thought, can we just keep on driving forever? Because it just, I just felt it comforting, yeah. like... Yeah. I felt like as long as the car wheels were turning, my life was going in some sort of direction. 
I just didn't have a direction then and I found it comforting and um I started mm-hmm. to feel ill like headaches and just like aches and pains and uh, I, I I lost my appetite and things like that and um went to uh I didn't want to go to the doctors in Pakistan because my personal opinion is that I don't trust them <laughs> I don't think they I just I feel yeah. like they they care is not as 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 good as as this country is so I was I didn't really want to put my health in their hands and I just thought you know well whatever it is will go away but it was I just was getting weaker and weaker every day so my family were like no you need to go and get it checked out at least so I went there and um they said to me oh before we can do anything you need to have a blood test so that was a relief cuz I was thinking well, at least they're not going to give me some medicine without knowing what's wrong that seemed like okay maybe I was wrong they're doing things properly they want to do a blood test so um they did a blood test on me and on the same day of the blood test they got the results back and they said to me that my results said that i had uh, malaria and um they uh, mm. prescribed me a combination of medications to help with it but those medications that i had i was allergic to but i didn't know at the time i was allergic to because i had never ever ever in my life been allergic to anything nor did i know that medications can make you ill like i always like my opinion is um, there's no such thing as a bad medication i thought all medications are good so i took the medication and i i can't remember the time scale but i think it was maybe like 2 days after or a day after i started to notice a deterioration in my skin so it started off with um waking up one morning and just seeing like these red little dots on 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 the on the surface of my skin and 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 you know like i just felt itchy like like this i feel itchy at that moment in time i thought in my head oh this is chicken box because i had chicken pox twice i had it as a child and i had it again as an adult which was horrendous and i thought oh my luck i've got chicken pox again it didn't occur to me that this was the start of something serious and that potentially could kill me my parent my mom i don't i don't know the science behind it but my mom she had chickenpox twice as well once as a adult once as a child once as as an adult my older sister had the same thing once as a child once as an adult and i had it too and knowing my luck i just assumed oh chickenpox again and then i went back to the doctor and they were like yeah 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 Oh this is this is just like a malaria rash he get it sometimes so he kind of changed up the medicines and then gave me something a bit different and then that didn't help and it was getting worse like i could start seeing a deterioration in the in my skin and it was becoming more and more serious and then when i went back to him again then his story would change and he was actually this is chickenpox and then before i knew it it took it took a life of its own and i i literally my whole body got burnt and then it was uh it's like something out of a um a movie but it wasn't it's my life and then it came uh a matter of trying to get back to the UK and trying to get treatment because they didn't know what was going on wait were you was it causing you pain this the skin condition it was horrendous was i mean 
you just have to type in the uh, uh, is is really graphic. Like if you just type the name of the condition toxic epidermal necrosis into Google, I say that you have to have a strong stomach because the 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 pictures are so graphic. It did it took a life of its own. Every day, my my skin will morph into something horrendous. It was it was it was taking a life of its own. I I was losing skin. It was bloody. It was bleeding. It looked like cigarettes had had been burnt on my face. I were, my eyes were bloodshot. The the my eyelashes fell out. I had a little crust all around my eyes, and you couldn't even wipe them away. There was billions of them. It was like I uh, I had um big um lumps in my hair and I wasn't able to comb my hair anymore because it was too painful uh I, I couldn't even go to the toilet because it was so excruciating my throat was closing oh up I couldn't drink water it was I was gonna die they 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 said to me how the hell the doctors how the hell did you fly on an airplane and not die and get to this country and I was like I didn't do anything. It was her. It was my daughter. She was the one that was helping me through it. And she's the one that was guiding me and taking care of me. Yeah, it's a really long story. And I talk about it in my book, everything, every single detail. And along the way, I met people which tried to help me. And I met people which judged me, people which were afraid of me, people who didn't t- treat me very well. I It's it's all in the book. Mm, and I think you, so you managed to make it back into the UK and you were admitted to a yeah, hospital yeah. here. And was that where, did your condition then yeah, sort of when deteriorate I, um, further? Yeah, um, I was on like a seven and a half hour flight and um, it was really hard to get the paperwork as well to be able to get on that flight considering how sick I was. I lost the use of my legs I was in a wheelchair and my father which is in his late 60s was the one wheeling me around in a wheelchair everyone kept on thinking what is wrong with her I look like something out of a horror movie and I can say that now because I'm grateful for the improvements that I've had in my skin and it's taken me a long time to get over the trauma of it and I'm still processing the trauma of it but it took me a long time at the start to to be able to to accept my skin and myself again because it really scarred me when I got to yeah. when I got to the hospital uh, here they were kind of like baffled they were like they didn't know where to begin it's like they didn't know where to begin they were kind of like thrown back I was in the A and E department and my brother's a physio so he was like kind of like trying to explain as much as he could but I just felt like I kept on speaking to several professionals and I felt like it wasn't going anywhere and I could feel my throat closing up I was running out of uh, of words I couldn't speak anymore so they had to kind of repeat the same information for me because I couldn't do it anymore and then they did a um biopsy so they took a sample of my skin on my um arm and they got it tested and it came back for toxic epidermal necrolysis. And then they said, and they uh, examined me and they go, her throat's closing up. We need to put her on a ventilator or she's going to die. So within the space of flying from a different country, landing here, I went straight to the hospital and I was put into a coma. I was put into a coma and they said to me, um, not me, obviously, but they said to my family that you need to prepare yourself for the worst because um, we really don't know at this moment in time how 
we can ha- how they can help me because they were giving me a combination of medicines when I was there. So I didn't know which one it was. It could have been one, it could be two. And the the doctors at Heartlands Hospital, they wanted to know what medicines I've had to kind of get an understanding of what could have caused this. And it was like a scramble of trying to find out the medicines, the boxes, something, because they really didn't know because they didn't want to give me something that could finish me off because I was on my last leg. So it was my husband that found the medicine in a bin that the cleaner hadn't thrown away that day or they would have never have known um, what medicine had caused my reaction. And they, they weren't willing to take the risk. They said, they said that we're going to put her on some fluids because I hadn't eaten in days. I hadn't eaten in like days. And other than that, they weren't going to do anything else. So my skin was continuing to deteriorate while I was in the coma. So once I found out what the medicine was or they had a hunch or they had, they had a starting point, that's when they were like, okay, we're going to transfer to the Queen Elizabeth, the specialist hospital, and we're going to let them know. And then they started to uh, basically take care of me and um, helped me to get better. And But it was a really long process. So I had to learn to do everything again, learn to walk and everything. Wow, that I mean, that's an incredible story. Um, and it must have taken you a long time to recover. And having you must have had so much, you must have so much strength to have been through that process. And how, obviously, you came so close to losing your own life. How did that affect your grief and your I thoughts think throughout the my future? allergic reaction helped me to let go of her, like, you know how you constantly have that internal battle with yourself? And you blame yourself or 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 you wish mm. things were different or you it helped me to make peace with it and not to be look not to be hard on myself anymore, to take care of myself, to be my own best friend, to accept things for what they were. And I if it I honestly think if it weren't for the how horrendous the allergic reaction was, but I think it helped me in a way to kind of accept because I I wasn't willing to accept and there was a lot of anger still in me and um, it helped me to come to peace with her death and because I was so close to dying, it made me realise that I didn't really, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to cause my family more pain. They, they already had, to, they've lost such that I, I it made me realise that I have a purpose. They they said to me that my chances of survival were very low, but they still did their best. And slowly, you know, I started to respond and get better. But um, my chances were very low. It could have been completely different, but it wasn't. So it's that belief that actually God has a plan. And my mom goes to me, God didn't give you a second life if he didn't think he didn't plan anything for you for you in the future. So there's there's other plans ahead. I don't know what they are, but my mom always tells me that she goes, your life was saved because God has a plan for you. There's more for you to do. Mm. So, And following your experiences, you've written a book. What made you decide to document your experiences in that way? And how did you find the process of writing and publishing your book? The thing was, I started, when I came back from the, when I was finally discharged from the hospital, I think it was around... Uh, December, December the 19th, uh, I was discharged. And I think it was the Sajdar's first birthday. And I had 
a few months after, I mean, like a month and a half after coming home from the hospital. And my head was spinning because I was thinking, this is my daughter's first birthday. This is not how I planned it on the, on the level of losing her. And then I was thinking, oh my God, like I literally can't walk. I literally can't do anything. I'm like, I had so much going on in my head. I felt like it was going to explode. Grappling with the allergic reaction and grappling with her first birthday and her not being here. And I I needed to put it on paper. I needed to kind of get it out because it was going around in my head too much. So I started to write just for the sake of getting it off my chest because it was it was getting too much in my head. And slowly as I started to write, and I always I always told myself when I write, I write with my heart. I don't really think about it. I just speak from my heart. I mean, I started to write and then I, I started to share it with my family members. They were like, actually, this is, this, this is, they started to cry and they were like, oh my God, this is so, so emotional and stuff. And I was like, well, I'm just saying it from my heart. And then I thought to myself that maybe I could help someone like all of this heartache this this uh, struggle maybe it can make someone else feel better make them feel less alone maybe make them uh, draw strength from experiences that are indescribable and give them some hope so maybe I can do something so it's from there I decided to put the book together and it was really hard I think that with the um, the stillbirth I found that therapeutic and I found it very easy it wasn't something that I needed to think about it was just coming from my heart but with the allergic reaction because I had just come home myself I felt like going right back to the beginning it was hard I was I was reliving it while still so early on in my recovery so it was hard for me I really struggled I did have like trouble sleeping and flashbacks and nightmares and stuff but I still carried on with it because I think it's important that people are aware of this this awful condition and and just generally speaking if they take any medication just to uh, make sure that um they they read the description thing but also to just keep a note of what they take so if something did happen you, you know what that medicine is with me I don't know what medicine it is I've been warned of a lot of medicine but that doesn't stop like the chance of you know, because it was never named you know it's still a risk for me but once you know that that medication is not good for you you can just cut it out completely and also you can seek help a lot sooner with me and other stories that I've read online there's people which misinterpret the symptoms for something else and because it doesn't escalate as quickly the first couple of days is quite mild and then it kind of speeds up people people lose valuable time time that they can't get back and 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 the condition like escalates. So I imagine the sooner that it gets picked up and it's identified and you can get treated for it, that the better your yeah. your chances of recovery. Well, mm. thank you so much. We are about out of time, but thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your story and Sujah's story. Would you like to tell people where they can connect with you online? Yeah, and um, where they can find you can follow book? me on Instagram. Um, my uh, it's is that Angel Mommy. 1702 2018 so you can follow me on instagram if you would like and if if you would like to um look up the book and see for yourself um i've got the link in the description box if you have instagram or you could just find it on amazon if you just type in my stillbirth yet still here 
in books you'll be able to access it and i'll put i'll put a direct link to amazon and to your instagram in the show notes so people can find that um if they want to check it out thank you so much again asma thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on itunes you can follow me on instagram at footprints on our hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.